This morning we'll read from verse 1 to verse 17. When he was come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, there came a leper and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus put forth his hand and touched him, saying, I will, be thou clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said unto him, See that you tell no man, but go your way, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commandment for a testimony unto them. And when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lies at home, sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. Jesus said unto him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. For I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goes, and I, and I say to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to them that followed, Truly I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And I say to you that many shall come from the east and the west and shall sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the children of the kingdom shall be cast out into outer darkness. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said unto the centurion, Go your way, as you have believed, so be it done unto you. And his servant was healed in the selfsame hour. And when Jesus was come into Peter's house, he saw his wife's mother laid and sick of a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she arose and ministered unto them. And when the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with demons, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and he healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. Let's pray again. Our Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your son Jesus Christ, for sending him into this world. And we thank you for the scriptures that we can actually come together and we can read about the things that your son, your holy son said and did and that we can learn about who you are. And I thank you for this time and I pray that you would fill each one of us with the Holy Spirit, that you'd give us ears to hear and to understand what you have to say to us this morning, what you have to say from heaven to us. I pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Well, we finished the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew's, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7 is the famous teaching of Jesus called the Sermon on the Mount. As we move on 
from the Sermon on the Mount and we move on in Matthew, it's very important that we understand that Matthew didn't write his book all willy-nilly, okay? He didn't write his book like sometimes we might reminisce. Have you ever um, had a late night with an old friend and you're kind of just kicking back on the couch and you're, remember the time that this happened? And yeah, and you start laughing. And what about this time? And remember this happened? There's no order or structure. You're just kind of remembering random things. That's not how Matthew wrote his gospel or this book. It's not unorganized. It's organized because Matthew wrote this gospel with a purpose. The purpose of the book of Matthew is not simply to relay a whole bunch of facts. Matthew's not a chronicler. If you go up to Utah State and you go to the library, you can pull off some books on that shelf that you couldn't read if you even wanted to. They're so dull. It's just a bunch of facts. They're, they're just chronicles of things. Minutes, reports. This happened, this happened, this happened. There's no purpose to the book except to just contain a bunch of facts. But when the authors of the books of the Bible, all of them, even the Old Testament and the New, both the Old and the New, wrote their books, it wasn't just to put a bunch of facts on the page. It was to communicate God. It was to preach Jesus. It was to preach the Son of God and to make him known. Charles Erdman wrote, he was a professor at Princeton in the 1800s, to demonstrate, Matthew wrote the book, his book, to demonstrate the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ. Remember, Matthew's writing this in the first century. People have a lot of questions about what the apostles are preaching. He wrote to demonstrate the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, the predicted Messiah, the king of the Jews, who had been rejected by his own nation, who was being accepted by the Gentiles, and who someday was to return in power and great glory. This is why he wrote the book. And to accomplish this, he wrote his book in an organized fashion. Now turn to Matthew chapter 4 with me. And look at verse 23 and 24. An important little passage in Matthew's structure. Matthew 4, verse 23, Matthew writes, And Jesus went about all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and preaching, what? The gospel, got good news of the kingdom. We've talked a lot about that already, haven't we? The good news of the kingdom, and healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria. They brought unto him all sick people that were taken with diverse diseases and torments and those which are possessed with the devils and those which are lunatic and those who had the palsy and he healed them. Now that's a summary statement of the, of the ministry of Jesus before he was crucified. Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, open this up for us a bit. It says he went and preached the gospel of the kingdom. Well, what was he preaching? Well, we get to see what he was preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. However, it doesn't say that Jesus simply taught. It also says that he did amazing miracles. You remember in the Gospel of John, John 7, 46, they said about Jesus, nobody speaks like him, right? Do you remember that in John? There's something so special about Jesus, nobody talks like this man. 
What an amazing statement about Jesus. He's not one of many religious teachers. Now, there's a lot of religious teachers in this world that the world respects. And they're all kind of the same in the eyes of the world. You know, Gandhi is like Jesus, they say, and Jesus is like Mohammed, and they all kind of have the same message. But the people didn't say that about Jesus. They said, nobody is like him. Gandhi isn't like him. Mohammed's not like him. Nobody speaks like him. Earlier in that very same chapter, however, they also said of Jesus, when Messiah comes... Will the Messiah do more miracles than Jesus has? <laughs> right? So not only did he speak different than everyone else, neither had any done like Jesus in the amount of miracles that he did. And you see it in the Gospels, right? When you read this, it should just blow our minds, and it, I'm sure it blew their minds back in the day, that anyone who came to Jesus was healed. Really an amazing thing. And so chapter Eight and chapter 9 as the Sermon on the Mount opens up the teaching side of the ministry of Jesus we're going to now look at the healing ministry of Jesus and the miracles that he did so at the beginning of chapter 8 we find the first individual act of healing recorded in Matthew so far we haven't uh, read of any individual act of healing. We've had this, the grand statement in Matthew 4 that he heals the sick. But here's the first. And commentators talk about the law of first mention. When something is mentioned for the first time in the Bible, it's very important to take notice. Think about it. Why does Matthew record this miracle of the healing of the leper first? He's got to write one first, right? And so... Whenever something is recorded first, it's very important because obviously it was important to the apostle to record this. The first mention of something is always setting the standard of the other miracles or of any other time that particular thing is mentioned. You want to know what Jesus' miracles were like? I'm going to give you the first taste. And this kind of sets the standard for the rest. All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, contained this healing of the leper, which means that they all thought it was very important. I hope that when you read this, you don't just read this as, oh, he healed a leper. Cool. <laughs> Brothers and sisters, all three synoptic gospels record this healing for a reason. And Matthew records it first. How many sick people do you think Jesus healed? How many lepers do you think he healed? Thousands. Why would this one be recorded? What makes this one special? And there's no doubt about it. It is a very special miracle that Jesus performs. What makes it special is what it communicates about Jesus. What it tells us about him and what Jesus, of course, tells us about God. Is that relevant to you today? Yeah? <laughs> or is that just 2,000 years old chronicle stuff? I think that's relevant to us because it tells us about the living Savior and about the Father in heaven. Look how Matthew starts here in verse 2. He uses the word behold. That means he wants you to draw your attention now to what is about to happen. 
Behold, there comes a leper and worships him. The worship, I don't think Matthew's trying to communicate that the leper thought that he was God and he was bowing down and worshiping him in that sort of a sense, but that he came and prostrated himself before someone whom he saw as great, someone who could heal him, a leper. Now, in Jesus' day, the Jews actually called lepers wicked people. Wicked people. And the reason why is because the Jewish people thought that leprosy was punishment from God on account of sin. You remember in the Old Testament, the stories of the lepers. You remember Miriam in the Old Testament? Remember Miriam grumbles and complains against Moses, and what does God do in response to that? He makes her leprous, right? So people think, okay, leprosy from God for sin. Or remember Uzziah, King Uzziah? King Uzziah went into the temple where only the, Le the Levitical priests should go in and offer sacrifices. And Uzziah basically went in to offer his own sacrifice. And the priest came to confront him and said, you're not supposed to be here according to the law of Moses. Let's just, let's just get you out of here, King Uzziah. We respectfully ask that you'd leave. And he got really angry, and he pointed his finger at them and said, arrest those priests. And as he pointed his finger at them, his arm became leprous. He became leprous. And so the people say, ah, leprosy's from God on account of sin. And there's some truth, obviously, to the fact that leprosy is related to sin. Brothers and sisters, all sickness is related to sin because we wouldn't have sickness if you didn't live in a fallen world, right? If Adam and Eve hadn't have sinned, and of course we can't blame, we can't look at them and point the finger because which one of you, had you been in Adam and Eve's position, wouldn't have sinned? Because of the fall, death came into the world and sickness. And so the Jews saw lepers as especially wicked. They were also ceremonially unclean according to the law which means they had to distance themselves from the people. If anyone touched a leper, then it would be like touching someone that's dead. And then they'd be ceremonially unclean. They wouldn't be able to go to the temple. They wouldn't be able to offer sacrifices. They'd have to cleanse themselves ritually before they could be welcomed back into the camp. So the leper was really in a horrible situation, not only physically. You've got to understand the situation in Israel. It's not only an awful physical disease, but it's a social disease. Ever seen West Side Story? <laughs> I got a social disease, <laughs> right? <laughs> no one wants a child with a social disease. <laughs> so he comes to Jesus and he says this amazing thing. Verse 2, Lord, if you are willing, if you are willing you can make me clean. You realize that the leper here is not doubting Christ's power and ability to heal lepers. This recorded miracle that Matthew puts here at first is not about simply showing us how powerful Jesus is to heal the sick. 
He could have picked any number of miracles to show that. In fact, he already sufficiently showed that in chapter 4 when he said Jesus went about healing all manner of sickness. We can say, oh wow, Jesus is powerful. That's what that shows us. This, on the other hand, isn't here just to show us that, wow, Jesus can heal leprosy. And the man who comes to Jesus knows that. Jesus, you are powerful to heal, heal lepers. In fact, you've healed all sorts of different people. The doubt is, are you willing to heal me? A.B. Bruce wrote, Men more easily believe in miraculous power than in miraculous love. True or false, do you think? Now, we don't often think that. Sometimes we might think, well, yeah, I believe that God loves me, but I don't know if he's going to do a miracle here. I I think A.B. Bruce is actually more correct. We're more willing to believe, yes, I know God is all-powerful because he created the universe and he's done miracles, obviously, but does he love me, right? And to love you is indeed miraculous love. (laughs) Notice, I I want you to, to, to see that the emphasis in the man's question or saying is the word me, is the word me. Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Me. You can clean me, if you're willing. Me is the emphasis. So many other are being healed. Is there a miracle for me too? You know, we often just read these stories and and make it very amoral. It's just about a sick man that gets healed. The sick man has no history. The sick man has no past. The sick man has no sins. He's just a sick man, and Jesus heals him. However, what do you think about this leper and the way he thought about himself? Do you think perhaps he felt also that God's judgment was against him? Well, I've got this horrible disease, and I'm not only physically a mess, I'm socially an outcast. Even in the law, I'm cast out. Even in the law, I'm unclean. I feel like an outcast from God. Does God want me? I know I'm a sinner. I'm sure this man had sinned many times. Maybe he was full of bitterness. Maybe he had committed certain sins and he was associating them with his leprosy. Man, I'm probably leprous because of that. God's against me. I'm cursed. And he's seeing Jesus heal all these other people and he has a little bit of hope that maybe I can be healed, but I'm doubtful. I'm guilty I'm a diseased man. I'm a diseased soul. And so he comes to Jesus with doubt. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. You see what this story is all about? And what does Jesus do? Jesus could have healed him in many different ways. He could have spit in his face, right? (laughs) As we saw him do in other miracles. Jesus could have just said, you're healed. He could have said, stay back. I'll heal you from a distance. It makes the point, not just to say that Jesus touched him, but that Jesus put forth his hand and touched him. There's an emphasis on the touch in this text. Jesus puts forth his hand and touches this man who's probably not been touched by anyone in a long time. And Jesus says these beautiful words, I will. 
you be clean. See, this story is all about the willingness of Christ who reveals to us the willingness of God. And when we mean willingness, we don't just mean, "Eh, I'm willing for that to happen. But the desire of Christ and the desire of God to touch and to cleanse everyone. Even the most filthy, diseased soul and guilty soul. No one needs to ever feel like God won't have them. Christianity, brothers and sisters, isn't just about worshiping God or knowing God as a powerful God. Now, God is powerful, and you could spend your whole life being amazed at the power of God. You could. There's people in this world that do that. They go to their services, their religious services, and they just think about and meditate upon the grandeur of creation and how powerful God is. Or even maybe how good and mighty and moral God is. How moral he is. God is so righteous. God is so holy. No one can approach God's holiness. True, I'm not going to disagree with that. But Matthew records this miracle first because it captures what Christianity is all about which is not just knowing God as a powerful God, not even just knowing God as a righteous God, but knowing God as a God who loves people and who is desirous for sinners. A God of love, a willing God. Let me ask you this morning, when you think about God, what do you think about? You should think that he's powerful and righteous. Do you also believe this morning that God loves you? Do you believe this morning that God wants you? Do you really believe that? That God wants you? Or do you feel, well, I know he wants people out there. I mean, obviously, because people are obviously being saved and, and God's revealing himself to people. But me? Me? I mean, what about me? Because I'm a bad guy. I mean, no one else knows my sins. Would he really have me? Do you think that God wants you to be in doubt of his willingness, brothers and sisters? Do you think God wants you to live your entire life coming to church and worshiping God as a mighty God and a righteous God, but leaving feeling, I don't know if you'll have me? Do you think that's what Christianity is all about? I want to just share with you a little bit of my own story of how I became a Christian. I at one time was under extreme guilt for my sins. Look, Christianity is all about sin. It's all about forgiveness. And I was under extreme guilt for my sins. And during that time of extreme guilt, I really felt like I was on my way to hell. In fact, I believe I was on my way to hell, as the Bible says. And at that time, I had lost all hope in myself. Before my guilty season, I actually didn't feel too guilty because I felt like I was good enough to make it to heaven. I felt like I was acceptable before God. I felt like the way that I lived my life, God approved of it. And God would would have me and wanted me because I was worthy. I felt that way. But 
finally, my sin found me out and I became guilty and I realized that I'm like not, I'm not a good person. I'm not worthy. I might have felt like a leper. And I lost hope in my own worthiness. And therefore I felt like I was going to hell because I said, God's not going to have me. In fact, God would do good by not having me. If God chooses to not have me, kudos to him. (laughs) But I didn't want to perish, so I was begging God to save me. I was begging God to forgive me. I was basically saying, God, please have me. God, please forgive me. God, please save me. God, don't let me perish. I know I'm not worthy, God. I know I don't deserve a God. I know I'm a sinner, God. But be merciful to me. Be merciful to me. And God was totally silent. And so that made things worse for me because I felt, okay, he's just saying no. He's just saying no. And then finally one night I was whimpering, crying myself to sleep, feeling rejected, feeling cast out, feeling that there was no hope because my only hope was if he'd be merciful to me as an unworthy sinner and I didn't feel he was. And then all of a sudden, actually it was a line from a song we sing here at church. Remember how we sing the song, In Christ Alone? And the first line says, in Christ alone, my hope is found. And that song came through my mind. And I think it needed to probably be from a song because the Bible was just condemning me every time I thought about the Bible. (laughs) Because to me, the Bible was just a book of rules. The Bible was not a beautiful good news, a beautiful message of the love of God. The Bible for me was just, here's the rule book. If you want to go to heaven, if you want to be right with God, here's the rule book for you to follow. And I felt like I had broken the rule book And so I couldn't get any comfort from this book, unfortunately, because of my misunderstanding of it. But this line from the song said, in Christ alone my hope is found. And I realized at that moment, my hope had been in myself. When I was feeling good about myself, it had been in myself. And when I was feeling bad about myself, it had been in myself. Why was I feeling bad? Why was I feeling like I couldn't be accepted? Because my hope was still in myself. Because I wasn't good enough. Right? And I realized at that moment that the whole point of Christianity was that Jesus died on the cross for guys like me, for sinners, that God wanted to have unworthy, diseased souls. And it was as if God had said to me then, I didn't hear a voice or anything, but all this just revelation was coming to me. And it was like God said to me, Eli, you have been begging me all this time for me to be merciful to you, for me to forgive you, for me to accept you. You've been begging it and asking and asking and begging. And the reason why you've been begging me to do this and to be merciful is because you don't even know me. You don't even know who I am. Because if you knew me, you wouldn't need to beg. You just believe And so I realized at that time, Christianity is not about trying to make God merciful. It's not about trying to make Christ willing to accept you and to save you. It's not about convincing God to forgive you. Christianity is about believing that God is merciful, that Christ is willing, and that God is willing to forgive you as a sinner. The proof of this is his son. The proof that God loves you, brothers and sisters, mark this down forever, 
the proof that God loves you, that God wants you, that God is merciful towards you, no matter how sinful you are, and that God will forgive you, is that he sent his son Jesus for you. And his son died on the cross for you. If he didn't want you, he wouldn't have done that. Do you believe in the mercy and goodness of God? Or are you trying to convince God to be merciful? This is what this story is all about. Of course, on a healing level, but it's to communicate something more. It's about God's heart. It's about Christ's compassion and desire for people, even the ones who are a little doubtful, like myself. That's why it's so beautiful. Jesus tells him in verse 4, go, don't tell anyone, but go your way and show yourself to the priests. Why does he say don't tell anyone? I think it's simply logistical because what we see is that the man actually, in, in the other Gospels, because this is recorded in three synoptics, he goes and tells everyone and it makes the point to say Jesus couldn't go into cities after that because uh, everyone thronged him. I think it's also logistical in the sense that Jesus didn't want the people to make him their king. At one point, it says that when the people saw a miracle that he did, it was when he fed the 5,000, they came and wanted to make him the king right then. Not that he wasn't their king, he was, but that was not his goal at this time. So he wanted to keep a low profile. Didn't work very well. And also, uh, Jesus... Not here, but later it indicates when he says, don't tell anyone, um, he, it, it's actually in light of the, the Pharisees wanting to kill Jesus. And he doesn't want them to know where he is. However, Matthew goes on to say in Matthew 12 that it's also prophetic that Jesus tells people not to speak about him. That it says he's not promoting himself. He's not just in it to get accolades. He tells the man, go and show yourself to the priests. Now, if you've ever read Leviticus 14, it's amazing thing. Absolutely amazing. Leviticus 14, almost the entire chapter, almost 32 verses of arduous details, precisely explaining what a leper should do and what the priest should do with a leper who's been cleansed. Just an amazing chapter. I would encourage you to read it this week. Leviticus 14. It's absolutely incredible how arduous and detailed and, and crazy it is. When a leper gets cleansed, go to the temple, and these are all the things you're going to do. He's supposed to be like washed several times, shave, his, shave all of his hair several times, offer this kind of a sacrifice, and then this kind of a sacrifice, and then this kind of a sacrifice. It's really complicated. And I wonder if anyone had ever been cleansed before, if the priest had ever gone through that complicated ritual before. You know, it's so complicated. And I wonder if God made it so complicated so that when this happened, and, they, and he goes to the priest and says, okay, let's do Leviticus 14. They say, well, we've got to learn Leviticus 14. <laughs> right? As a testimony unto them, Jesus says, I think number one, as we've seen in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. That Jesus is not against the law, he's not contrary to the law. The, of course, the Pharisees thought he was because of his teaching and what he did. 
healing on the Sabbath, telling sinners that they, could, that they were entering the kingdom of heaven if they simply believed in him. But he shows them, no, we are not against the law here. But also as a testimony to them that he was the Messiah, because one of the messianic signs that the Jewish people were anticipating, you can read it in their own writings, was that when the Messiah comes, the blind will see, the lame will leap, the lepers will be cleansed, it says. And he says, you go show yourself to the priest that they might see that I am the Messiah and that the Messiah brings salvation. Messiah reverses the curse of sin, heals the sick, casts out demons. And of course, all of this points to something even greater which we'll see in just a moment. The next miracle, verse five. The next miracle also is carefully selected and I want to suggest it's not here simply to show us the power of Christ's miracles, although it does show us that. When we read these miracles, we should be amazed at the power of Christ. Wow, he can just speak a word and someone far away is healed. That's encouraging. That's really encouraging to see the Christ power. But this is, recorded for more than that. Now the centurion comes to Jesus and the centurion is either a Roman centurion or it could even be a non-Roman Syrian centurion. But regardless of what it, who it was, it was a Gentile. And it's interesting that Jesus says he'll go and heal this servant. Because if you remember on another occasion when a Gentile beseeches Jesus to come and heal, uh, I think it was the daughter the Syrophoenician woman comes to Jesus. And what does he say to her? She's not a Hebrew, she's a Gentile. And what does he say to her? Do you remember? He says, I'm not sent to any but the lost sheep of the house of Israel, right? It's not good to throw the children's food to the dogs, right? What a, what a statement that he makes there. People get confused about that or hung up on that. I don't think Jesus was being disrespectful to the woman. So why here does he say, I'm going to go and heal your servant? When this is not a Hebrew, I think there's a reasonable explanation in Luke. If you turn with me to Luke chapter 7, because this is also recorded there. Luke 7. There's two very interesting details in Luke 7 uh, I'd like us to see this morning. One is a minor detail, which is what we're going to look at right now. Why Jesus goes and heals this person why Jesus says he'll go and heal a Gentile servant. Luke 7, verse 1. This is after Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum, and a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. You're going to notice Luke gives a little bit more details about the story. Matthew's not interested in those details. Matthew's interested in something else. Verse 3, and when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews. Notice. So we learn here in Luke that the centurion actually doesn't come to Jesus. It sounds like he does in Matthew. But Matthew says that because the servant that's sent is the same basically as the centurion going. But actually, he sends the elders of the Jews beseeching him, Jesus, that he would come and heal his servant. And look what they say in verse 4. When they came to Jesus, they besought him, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Okay? So, 
I take from this that this Gentile centurion is actually a proselyte or a convert to Judaism. He's a believer in the God of Israel. And so in that sense, he's kind of within the fold. But the Jews here are saying, he's worthy of this miracle. He's worthy that you should come. He loves our nation. He built us a synagogue. His servant's sick. This, if anybody's worthy of a miracle, this guy's worthy of a miracle. Jesus says, I'll go. And now look at verse 6, because this is the same as in Matthew. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was now not far from the house, what happens? The centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should come under my roof. Interesting. So all the people are saying, he's so worthy. And the centurion says, I'm not worthy. The centurion has a different opinion of himself than the Jews. And why? Because what is his worthiness in relation to? He's not, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. Who is he seeing? Who is he, who is he comparing himself to? but Christ. A lesson to be learned here is that for the most part, when people say they're worthy, when people think they're worthy, it's not because they're comparing themselves to Jesus or they're thinking about the holiness of God and the holiness of Jesus. It's just because they're comparing themselves to other people, right? Isn't that true? Don't we try to make ourselves feel better than we are because we look at some other person that we conceive to be worse than us and we say, well, at least I'm not like them, right? I don't know how many times I've heard that on campus when I've talked with people. Well, I'm not like Hitler. Well, not many people are like Hitler, <laughs> right? <laughs> but are you like Jesus? Do you... Do you ever think of yourself in relation to God? Do you ever say, I'm not worthy when I think about myself in relation to God and his son, Jesus Christ? Because when, I, when you are thinking about God and when you're thinking about Christ, I don't think you can be thinking about your own worthiness. And as long as someone is thinking about their own worthiness, it's because they're not thinking about God and they're not thinking about Jesus. Thank you. Is it a, any less than that is a blasphemous attitude to think, oh, I'm worthy for Jesus to come into my house. Now, remember, I'm not saying that Jesus won't come into your house. But just because he does come, and just because God does forgive you and accept you, and just because God does take you to heaven, doesn't mean you're worthy of it, right? It means God is doing something so wonderful to you, even though you don't deserve it. So there's a different in perception there. And the centurion says, I'm looking now back in Matthew chapter 8. The centurion says, that he's a man under authority, and he just says, Jesus, look, I know how it works. I'm a man in authority. 
I tell people to go and go. I don't need to go and I don't need to travel around. Look, you are so much greater than I. You have so much more authority than I. Simply say the word and my servant will be healed. And when Jesus hears this, it says he marvels rarely ever in the New Testament or in the Gospels does it ever say that Jesus marvels. In fact, this is one of the few places that it ever says Jesus is amazed. It, it needs to take something amazing to amaze God. <laughs> you know, there's one other place where Jesus is amazed, and it's in Mark chapter 6, verse 6, and it's almost the exact opposite of this story. Jesus' own countrymen disbelieve in him and say, who is this? Isn't his father Joseph and his mother's Mary and he grew up with us, played with our kids? This is, what, who, is, who does he think he is, a prophet? And they don't believe. Notice the opposite the opposite reaction to Jesus, the only two times he marvels, is how people see him and whether they believe or not. The centurion says, Lord, I'm not worthy. You are, you make me unworthy, but I believe that you have power. And in Mark, it's, who's this guy? This itinerant traveling wannabe. And they had disbelief. And Jesus marvels, it says, at their unbelief. He marvels at their unbelief in Mark. He marvels at the centurion's faith. Note, it is the centurion's faith that gets God amazed. Faith is most important and precious to God. Here we see that there's no conflict between Jesus and Paul, as some people like to say. Some people like to say, Paul is all about faith. Jesus and the other apostles are all about works. Not true. Paul is all about faith. Jesus is all about faith. And the Old Testament is all about faith in God. Believing God. Believing who God is. Believing, as we have said, not only in his power and his might, but in who he is and trusting in him. Ask yourself this morning, do you believe? Do you have faith in God? Jesus says that where he should find faith, he didn't find it in Israel. And he gives this very sad pronouncement in 11 and 12. He says, I say unto you, this is not a happy announcement. He's not saying, isn't it awesome and great that many are going to come from the east and the west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the children of the kingdom will be cast out. Certainly, Jesus is so happy that the Gentiles will come in and join Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But it's a, it, is sad, it is a sad pronouncement that isn't it sad that in the light of the fact that many will come from the east and the west from the most unlikely places and believe in the, in the God of heaven and the goodness of God and trust in him like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob did, isn't it sad that the very children of the kingdom, notice how he calls the Jewish people here, the children of the kingdom, to them it belongs, will be cast out into outer darkness and there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Outer darkness simply means outside of the kingdom. They won't enter into the kingdom. And brothers and sisters, as we've seen, entrance into the kingdom of God or being excluded from the kingdom of God is all about faith. Faith, faith, faith is the issue of whether you or I are going to enter the kingdom of God or not and take a seat with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Here Jesus says, we're going to sit down with the patriarchs. You can read about the patriarchs in the Old Testament. Not necessarily the most moral people. But believers, right? Believers. So the purpose of this miracle being recorded here is not just to show Jesus' power, but to communicate the importance of faith. The importance of faith. Some people say, or object, against Jesus. If Jesus is the Messiah, why did Israel reject him? And we answer, the fact that Israel rejected him is proof that he is the Messiah. Because the scriptures say this very thing. That many will come from the east and the west. That the Gentiles will believe upon Jesus and come into the kingdom while the children of the kingdom will be cast out. This is an Old Testament thought. This isn't just new here. And so if you want to see that Jesus is the Messiah you can answer someone who objects like that and say, no, it's precisely as Jesus said, it's precisely as the prophet said. Look at all the nations of the world who have believed in Christ and the very fact that Israel, who should believe, rejected him is part of God's plan. But the difference between Israel and the Gentiles here is faith. The last miracle recorded in our chapter or passage that we read in this chapter is... Verse 14 and 15, very short. It's also recorded by all three synoptics. Isn't that interesting? The healing of Peter's mother-in-law is recorded by all three synoptics. Now, I don't know why this is recorded. Maybe for those who are doubtful that Christ is even willing to save mother-in-laws. can't conceive of any other reason why this is here. <laughs> Actually, maybe Matthew Henry can do better than I. He says, it is recorded as an instance of Christ's peculiar care of and kindness to the families of the disciples. I think I agree with Matthew Henry, famous commentator. You see, this is showing us that Christ doesn't only care for and heal strangers, those who are out there, which is a lot easier to believe, isn't it? Do you ever find yourself believing that God loves the world, is willing to save the world, is willing to heal strangers and save strangers and forgive strangers, but when it comes to you and your own family, it becomes a little more difficult to believe. But I think this is why this is recorded, just to show us that Jesus isn't just caring for the masses, but even for those close to you, which is sometimes hard to believe in the cases of mother-in-laws. And lastly, verse 16, when evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with the devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and he healed those that were sick. It's, it says it's when evening has come. Why did they come in the evening? If you compare the story to Matthew and Mark, who also record it, it's because that was the Sabbath day. Earlier that very day, Jesus was in the synagogue, and 
That's what the Jews did on the Sabbath. They would come to the synagogue and hear the reading of the law. And at the synagogue, he actually cast out a demon. There was a demon-possessed man at the synagogue. Demons can, yes, exist in religious places, as we talked about before. That's actually where to expect the devil, right? Is in the religious places. We shouldn't think the devil's just out there. The devil would never say that either. So, um, but they came to him in the evening because the Sabbath was now over. In the Jewish calendar, and the Jewish way of thinking about time and days, when the sun goes down, the day is over. The next day then begins. And so once the Sabbath is over, they come to Jesus. They, they're just, probably all of them were just waiting for the sun go, to go down, and then they just beelined it to Jesus with their demon-possessed and their sick because of the miracle he had done that day. And Jesus heals them. And in verse 17 it says, this was that it might be fulfilled by Isaiah the prophet saying, and a beautiful saying here we'll close with this morning. He himself took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. The fact that Matthew quotes this shows us that the apostles believed that Jesus was who Isaiah was talking about in Isaiah 53, that most famous chapter in the Old Testament where it talks about the sufferings of the Messiah for his people. This passage sets Christ's healing ministry in, in its true light, that it's not just about his power, but the point of the verse is about God's love for people. The emphatic sense of this verse is he himself, he himself, no one else, cared for you cared for people so much that he would take upon himself and he would take away their infirmities, their sicknesses. I mean, that's what Jesus did. He went about doing good, healing people. He loved people. He was compassionate. He cared for those who were sick. He didn't just say, go your way. The most important thing is that you are just saved. Your, your soul is saved. He also cared about people's physical needs and their pain and their sorrow. And yet... Isaiah 53 points to something deeper than simply our physical sickness. Isaiah 53, which describes the purpose of the coming of Jesus. Jesus did not just come into the world to, to heal people's sicknesses. He didn't come into the world to make you rich. He didn't come into the world to make you wealthy or healthy, even though he cares about those things and our needs. He came into the world to take care of your greatest need and your greatest need was salvation because of your sins which made you unacceptable alienated from God and worthy of eternal damnation the same love and compassion that Jesus had for the sick he has for the lost Christ coming into the world to die on the cross for your sins also shows us, and more so, the love and compassion that God has for you. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, Peter tells us in 1 Peter, that when Jesus died on the cross, he was actually dying for our sins. All the wrong things we have ever done, all the immoral things we had ever done that disqualify us from the presence of God, Jesus Christ said, I will take those, I will bear those, I will take them away because I love and care 
for you. It says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray. We've each one turned to our own way. Do you believe that about yourself? And the Lord laid upon Christ the iniquity of us all. It's through Jesus Christ and his death that we are washed from our sins. Not just our physical leprosy, but our spiritual leprosy. We are washed from our sins through the blood of Jesus Christ. And without him, there is no cleansing. Without him, there is no salvation. So the question is, are you clean? Are you spiritually clean? Have you been forgiven? Have you been accepted? Have you been washed? Have you been saved by Jesus Christ? Has what he done on the, on the cross for you applied to your life? You might say, well, I know that what he did on the cross is enough for me, but I'm not sure he's willing to save me. Brothers and sisters, I want to tell you the good news of the gospel is he's willing to save you. He'll save you right now if you want. If you come to him, you will find his arms have already been wide open for you. If you ask him to save you, you'll find that God says you don't need to ask, just believe. Yes, the answer is yes. Take freely from the water of life. If you want to see God's willingness, then look to Jesus Christ. Look at him how he deals with people who are physically sick and look to him what he did on the cross for you. That's the whole point of Christianity, the revelation of the open-heartedness and love and grace of God. So I challenge you to believe this morning. Put your faith in the goodness of God as it is revealed in Jesus Christ. In every sense of the word, he is our great physician. Let's pray. Father, we marvel at your goodness, at your compassion and kindness and your desire for us. And Lord, I think if we were honest, we would have to say that most of the time we don't grasp how much you love us and how much you desire us. And if we're honest, it's because we're not thinking about your son and what your son did for us. So Lord, I pray that we would learn this lesson of the gospel that you love us, that you care for us, and that you're willing. And I pray for each one here, Lord, if there's anyone here that is doubtful or that doesn't know they've been forgiven, that doesn't have the assurance of your acceptance and love, that, Lord, you would show them this morning just your heart revealed in Jesus, that they would see that you love them dearly, that you, laid their, that you laid their sins upon your son at the cross to pay that price and that the blood of your son cleanses us from all sin. Thank you so much for caring for us even while we were unworthy. We bless you in the name of your son. Amen.